following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And that was Utah Phillips and Annie DeFranco with Bum on the Rods, something quite relevant to what we'll be talking about today. 2020 has been one hell of a year. And with 13 days still remaining before we tip into 2021, we're crossing our fingers and toes that there's no more ugly surprises lurking in store. Perhaps one of the most emotionally devastating areas outside of the medical crisis itself is the extreme impact the economic downturn has had on businesses and their employees, on the entrepreneurs who have seen years of hard work crumble overnight, on the newly unemployed joining the Centrelink queues, and especially on an entire generation of young workers. One of the government's immediate responses to this crisis was to create the JobKeeper scheme and an additional COVID supplement for the rapidly increasing numbers receiving the former New Start, now known as JobSeeker. The JobKeeper scheme has been both highly praised and equally criticised, and even though recently extended until March 28, 2021, there's an enormous cliff looming when it ends. Joining us today, we are fortunate to have leading Australian barrister, employment and industrial law expert, Ian Neal, SC, an expert on the ins and outs of JobKeeper, who will be discussing the employment and industrial law issues that lie at the bottom of the JobKeeper cliff. Ian, along with David Chin, SC and Christopher Parkin, developed the Guide to the JobKeeper Scheme and also co-authored with David Chin, The Modern Contract of Employment, the leading Australian text on the common law of employment. So welcome to the show, Ian, and thank you for fitting us into your very tight pre-Christmas schedule. I understand you're busy with some large active cases at the moment. That is so, but thank you very much. Would you be able to give us a little bit of background on how you got involved in um, employment law and then eventually a JobKeeper? What a large question. Effective <laughs> first funders, um, entirely by serendipitously. Uh, new law graduate... I had resolved not to practice law. Uh, I found my experience of studying law uh, rather arid. But um, by a series of fortunate events, I drifted into a, a small firm in Sydney that practiced in the area of employment. And I soon there found myself in the midst of a fascinating world, a world where uh, I got to learn at almost at first hand how many important industries and occupations worked, newspapers, television, radio, mining, all sorts of things. Uh, and as a lawyer advising about employment in, in those industries, I had a privileged um, vantage point, I suppose. And the other thing was that I found myself dealing with issues that seemed to me both real and fundamental. Essentially, uh, in the industrial system that we had in Australia then, now I suppose about 30 years ago, and still to a large degree, fairness was a an important element and striking a balance between competing interests uh, that were oft that often contended with one another vigorously, but within a rule-based framework. 
I found that fascinating. And so I stayed on and have practiced in that area ever since. Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, would have been amazing for a young fella to get straight into all sorts of stuff like that. I uh, found myself, for example, sitting in um, uh, editorial conferences of, of the large metropolitan newspapers. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, what, what a... <laughs> what an astonishing experience for a young bloke. Absolutely. So I'd like to start way back at the beginning, and, and we're talking about employment here. So a lot of people, I guess, it's like the fish swimming around, doesn't really know that they're in water, and we hardly ever notice the air that we're walking through, and employment's a similar thing. We haven't always had employment, have we? We, we have not. Um, employment and the law of employment, the way in which the law regulates working relationships, is a real barometer for uh, social perspectives. And it, it was one of the areas in which in the 17th and 18th centuries, we as a society began to shift from a, a status-based relationships into relationships that were governed by contract. And now we live in a, a a world in which we relate to one another essentially by means of agreements which are honoured and enforced if broken and statutes which are like a social contract in a sense. But before that, before that change began, we uh, uh, the world was very different. Relationships were based essentially upon the status that one person had in relation to another, and work was regulated in that way. Yeah, so you, you're probably referring to the landlord sort of system. Is that what you're thinking of? Or? Well, think about I mean, a classic easy way to think about it. Think about the medieval lord of the manor. He, and it was always a he, occupied a privileged social position in relation to uh, people under him, the tenants of his landed estate and so on and he occupied a subordinate position to people above him in in that chain each participant had rights and obligations towards other participants so the lord of the manor for example had an obligation to protect and secure the lives and property of uh, his tenants and the tenants had obligations to provide service to the landlord and that service work was regulated not by contract not by agreement but essentially by the relationship that each had towards the other yeah just a customary sort of thing yes yeah. yes yeah and that work was just one of the many social relationships that were organized in that way uh, family life was organized in that way uh the state was organised in that way, and even commercial relationships were organised in that way. Mm. Think about the medieval guilds and so on. Yeah, yeah, I was going to bring up the guilds, actually, because mm -hmm. a lot of the tradesmen were sort of outside that system of lord and serf a little bit, weren't they? They were a little bit, but, but again, they had a social place, and, and their rights and obligations were regulated by what that social place was, what their social position was rather than by agreements that they had w with um, the people they dealt with. 
Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the purpose of the guild was to enforce those social obligations. That's right, yeah. And I think um, the apprentice system where uh, almost all of the adolescents in the society were... were um, Employed pretty well, much. Pre-adolescent, I think, too, in well, many cases. Well, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were um, essentially the closest thing to an employment contract in those days was the apprentice sort of contracty thing that they had. Yeah, well, does that, that fit with your understanding? Yes, it does. That that was one of two sources, historical sources of what we would, or at least perhaps not sources, but the starting points of what we would recognise as an employment relationship now, um, master and apprentice, is the one you've identified, yeah. and the other are the casual labourers who would work essentially for hire, um, usually for a, a day at a time. Hmm. They're, they're the two starting points. But master and apprentice, that's a fascinating place to begin because if you think about it, that's there are still, although there's now an overlay of rules, regulations, statutes and and so on that govern apprenticeships, Still, fundamentally, there's uh, at the bottom of that relationship is uh, or are shared obligations, a relationship, uh, an obligation on the part of the apprentice to um, work, pay their way and um, learn from what in the old days would be called the master. And on the part of the master, an obligation to look after the apprentice, often in those days to, to house and clothe and care for them, take them into their home and so on. But even more importantly, to teach the apprentice, to pass on the, the trade or the skill. And that mutual obligation is still in the relationship of master and apprentice today. Yeah, and I suppose that legally speaking, I think the master and apprentice or the, the, that sort of, um, what was it, the common law of... of servants and masters or something was uh, that's the law still that's uh that's evolved down the uh, down the ages is that correct there there've been some important and indeed revolutionary changes along the way but it's it, it's certainly one of the starting points hmm. it's certainly one of the starting points and uh back uh, traditionally apprentices would enter into indentures whereby they agreed to serve the master and assume certain obligations. And those indentures were a form of contract. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a relationship that we're looking at, isn't it? Always, fundamentally. That's the key to understanding uh, the way in which the law and society has always looked at employment. It's, hmm. a, it's a relationship. So I've been, uh, been reading a bit of a fellow called David Ellerman out of the States. and. Um, mm-hmm. He's been doing a lot of research on the historical arguments against uh, slavery and coffee marriage. Um, and he, he reckons the, they weren't doing a lot of argument against the involuntary slavery. That was pretty hard to argue against. But mm-hmm. they instead took up the, uh, the voluntary slavery sort of agreements and argued against that. And it was, uh, it's interesting that they, um, they look at that relationship of one where the owner has, it takes, or I guess assumes, appropriates the responsibility for the slave. Um, so again, they have this same obligation to look after the slave and the slave has the, the obligation of obedience and working to, uh, to fulfil the contract that's 
there. But then he points out that this works great until the slave commits a crime. And then in criminal law, the slave is responsible for their own actions. What do you make of that one? Uh, the response of that's, that's always been, there are lots of strands in, in what you have related, the, mm. the history of indentured labour, um, indentures being a concept borrowed from uh, apprenticeship and then translated into a scheme where people essentially, and this is what you're talking about when you refer to voluntary slavery, there was a time when people were able to in effect, sell themselves for a period of time and bound, and bind themselves to uh, someone who wasn't called an owner but may just as well have been and, and gave up essentially a whole raft of important personal rights mm-hmm. in, in return for a payment of money uh, off, that often went to their families and so on. That's one strand in the sort of work that you you are describing. Another strand is the vexed question of when does one person become liable for the acts of another person, mm. so-called vicarious liability. And that's a question that has been highly influential in the law of employment in the United Kingdom and in this country. I guess it's, it's difficult. We're talking about alienating your your personal responsibility from yourself investing it in someone else which seems seems like a, a very abstract and odd idea doesn't it it, so. it is and 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 importantly there's the converse where one person assumes responsibility for the acts of another person and that and the way in which that has played out in the law of employment the reason why it has been hugely influential is that it came to be thought that employers who put their employees in in a position to go out into the world to deal with other people, in effect, as the employer's representative, ought then to be responsible for things that employees did. And that assumption of responsibility has become one of the critical markers between uh, employees on the one hand and independent contractors, people who work but not as employees on the other hand. Yeah, yeah, and it gets pretty thick in there, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the sort of relationship that we accept um, at work, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and and what happens, though, when, when somebody does break the law at work? Does that sort of fictional sort of arrangement where you can put, I guess, the, the re- results of your work, the good results, the, the profits into someone else's hands, does that stay there if, if you've broken the law? Depends um, on quite what one means by breaking the law. Criminal responsibility is one thing. Civil responsibility is another. Mm. So that no one is ever absolved of their responsibility for their own criminal acts. Hmm. Uh, And the flip side of that is that there are few, there are some, but very few circumstances in which somebody else, an employer, can be made criminally responsible for something that is done by one of their employees. I say there are exceptions to that. Occupational health and safety is one that occurs to me. But... 
civil liability, that's a different thing again. So there are many circumstances in which uh, employees can behave in ways that contravene civil laws or that otherwise constitute wrongdoing, and their employers can be liable for that. So to take the just a, a simple illustration from the facts of one of the seminal cases on the law of employment in this country, um, suppose a courier company, remember the days of bicycle couriers where bicycle couriers would zip about the streets, there were swarms of them, <laughs> often terrorising pedestrians. Suppose you have a courier company who engages a bicycle courier and that bicycle courier goes out and knocks someone down and injures them in a way that is negligent. If the relationship between the courier company and the bicycle courier was one of employment, then the courier company would be liable for the damage that the pedestrian suffered. The pedestrian could sue the courier company in negligence. If the bicycle courier was an independent contractor, then um, the courier company would not be liable for the um, misdeeds of the courier and the pedestrian could only sue the courier, which is often a hollow right, of course, even if they could find the courier. <laughs> so, Catch the courier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Catch them, chase them down the street or whatever. So that was the facts of a very important case and essentially it all came down to well, was the bicycle courier constituted by the courier company as the courier company's representative? And the answer in that particular case was uh, yes, so that the relationship was one of employment, so that the um, unhappy injured pedestrian could could um, sue the courier company. So I guess uh, we'll bring it up to the present now. And um, how does how does the employment contract affect? A, a worker now, I guess the, there is a, a sort of a, a responsibility of obedience there, really, isn't there? There is. There is. There are a couple of what I think are really interesting themes in that question. One is that every person who performs work for or for the benefit of another person is doing so under a contract between them. Sometimes the contract will be one of employment. Sometimes the it will be an independent contract. But our society has moved on from the status-based society that we were talking about a little earlier uh, to such a point that it is not possible for two people to have a meaningful working relationship other than pursuant to a contract. Mm, and I guess in this case, a contract's just an agreement, really, isn't it? If once It, it can be anything. Formal, yeah. Yes, it can be anything. So that's one point. It follows from all of that that every person who works as an employee in Australia is a party to a contract. Often that contract will be in writing. Sometimes it'll be wholly in writing. Sometimes it'll be a mix of, of terms that are written, terms that are agreed orally, and sometimes terms that arise as a consequence of a custom that attaches to the sort of work they do. Sometimes a contract can be wholly oral and sometimes still it can be constituted just by the or inferred from the conduct of each of the parties. But there's always a contract. Often you will hear people say, people who are undoubtedly employees, I don't have a contract. But in fact they do. What they really mean is they don't have a written contract. 
but there's still somewhere in there through through their words or actions a contract to be divined. So I guess the difference between being a, a independent contractor and being an employee is where the responsibility lies. Is that right? Correct. Correct. The, the law has developed lots of tests and factors which indicate one way or the other whether a person is an independent contractor or an employee. But where the responsibility lies, whether the worker has been constituted as the representative of the person for whom they're performing work, they're all critical questions. And then to hark back to another of the ideas you mentioned a moment ago, the idea of control is integral to an employment contract. Does the person for whom the work is being performed have the right to control the way in which the worker performs that work? If the answer to that question is yes, then that's a very powerful pointer to the relationship being one of employment. Indeed, not so long ago, it was regarded as the critical or decisive factor and in some cases still is. Yeah, yeah, we could talk about this for a long time, but unfortunately we've only got an hour. So, yeah. you know. um, so Ian, we're, we're in um, Canberra here. You know, a lot of people like to tease Canberra about just being a political hub. And, of course, we've got the, the bulk of the public service here. The, over the last few years, the public service has been doing quite a few large layoffs and have been replacing a lot of the positions with contracts. How, how much of a benefit is hiring contractors for an employer over having employees? Uh -huh. Well, there's a perhaps a rather Alice in Wonderland um, <laughs> uh, context for those kinds of questions because it all depends on whose point of view you're consulting, from what perspective are you looking at it. The law in this country particularly uses employment as a hook for many rights and obligations. So, for example, if you are an employee, then the Fair Work Act applies to you. And because the Fair Work Act applies to you, you have um, a capacity to seek relief against unfair dismissal. You, you are covered by modern awards. You are covered by enterprise agreements that are made with your employer. You have other rights and obligations under the Fair Work Act, uh, workers' compensation applies to you, you have access to long service leave, and so on and on and on it goes. There are lots and lots of rights and liabilities that attach to people because they are employees. There are all sorts of historical reasons why that's so, but what it means is that the status of employment, the relationship of employment, is used in our society as an important hook or marker for whether you have those rights or liabilities. And so, from a certain perspective, what is the consequence of, of contracting with somebody not as an employee but as an independent contractor? If that's what your relationship really is, then your work isn't a hook by which you become entitled to those rights and have those obligations. Mm, so an employer could divest a whole lot of responsibilities by changing the nature of that contract. Well, yes. Subject to this, um, the law is hostile to contracts which purport to constitute a relationship in a form that, in truth, it is not. Mm, what do they call them? Sham contracts. Yeah. Well, that's one. There are all sorts of ways in oh, which okay. um, <laughs> that, that's described, and sham contracts is, is yeah. one of them. Yeah. So but the courts will often be confronted by contracts that 
describe people as independent contractors and find, no, in reality, notwithstanding the terms of the contract, these people are not independent contractors. They are, in reality, employees. And so there's the hook. So, you know, we've seen a trend over the last few years, of course, of increase in offering contracts rather than um, employment, uh, so, you know, as an employee, uh, also increase in the casualised workforce. So when when COVID slammed into us last um, March, the environment was really ripe for um, a lot of issues to come up, you know, with um, the situation with people suddenly losing employment, not... Um, knowing about their future, not knowing what sort of rights they have. So then, you know, we've got the government responding to that by creating the JobKeeper scheme. And I know that we're going to talk about this in, in a bit more detail in a moment. But this really um, impacted to a great degree the um, contractors and casualised workforce quite differently to um, someone who's hired as a regular uh, full-time or long-term employee. Would you be able to give us a little bit of uh, background around the legal framework that applies to the JobKeeper scheme? The purpose of the JobKeeper scheme was essentially to preserve jobs, albeit in a very substantially changed form, but the preservation of jobs was the overriding objective. What the legislation was seeking to avoid was what would have otherwise been the inevitable consequence of the pandemic and the measures that were adopted to control it. And that was the widespread redundancies as businesses ceased to to trade and to have any useful work for their employees to do and any income from which to pay them. So what the JobKeeper scheme did essentially was to say, all right, one, you employers can make all sorts of changes to the terms and conditions on which you employ people, right down to telling them not to work at all, just standing them down altogether. It's the most extreme example. Uh, And in return, we will wipe out legislatively your obligation to pay wages or altogether, and replace that with an obligation to pass on wage subsidies that JobKeeper payments that we'll give to you, and then pay employees for work they do on top of that. So that's a, a short description of the way in which the JobKeeper scheme worked, a revolutionary concept in the field of employment in this country. You've touched on uh, another theme, though, and that is the large number of workers who were excluded from participation in the scheme, casual workers, broadly speaking, was one such class. And there, there were furious debates at the time about whether they should or should not be included in the scheme and what the consequences of that were. To some extent, there's a, a rational policy ground on which to exclude casual employees from a scheme of that kind. Other people have thought that it had a rather either ideological or expedient justification. So it probably looked quite good on paper unless you were one of the casualised workers who was excluded and uh, not able to keep a roof over their head or, um, you know, continue to um, exist, you know, above the poverty line. Uh, Correct, correct. And another thing that um, we've heard a lot of um, from our listeners, a lot of our listeners are young people, and they've, a lot of them are students, and you know they were deeply impacted in many ways by COVID. Not only was their source of income um, 
you know, either reduced or ended entirely, but COVID also impacted their ability to study. And we had a lot of foreign students here who were left in limbo, which they were here studying, they were working as a casualised employee, and they lost both their source of income and their ability to study, and they weren't able to return to their home country. So there was a sort of a, a three strikes for them in that situation. So was that ever um, discussed when the JobKeeper scheme was created on how to yes, address yeah. these yes. smaller yes. Um, smaller pockets of people that had, um, you know, more of a, a niche situation? The, the students that you're talking about <laughs> were, as you say, assailed from many sides and there were furious debates about whether they should or should not be included in the scheme. And attached to that was a, a debate about whether universities should be entitled to participate in the JobKeeper scheme generally. They were excluded. And uh, many people found it difficult to understand why that was so. So, yes, there were many classes of people who from one end or the other were excluded from participation in the scheme. And whether that was a good or a bad thing, whether there was a rational or an ideological justification for it, all were the subject of great debate. Now, more a matter of, I was going to say historical interest, but than than immediate, but that probably understates it. And then we had stats here that says that only 28% of workers under 25 years old actually qualified for job keepers. It gives you the, uh, an idea of the, the large number of people who are in insecure work before COVID, and that's only been made you know, more evident during COVID. That is certainly true. What is sometimes described as insecure work has, I think, been thrown into sharp relief by the experiences of this year. Mm. It's, it's both its extent and its true meaning for workers mm. who have that kind of employment. And, you know, I know that when you first um, started doing uh, media appearances to talk about this, we were... I had a looming crisis. We had the um, cutoff of JobKeeper in October. Now, it's since been extended to the 28th of March, 2021. If by um, pushing it to a future date, does that just mean the potential crisis has been pushed to a future date, that that cliff is still looming regardless of what date we put on it if we're still in the midst of an economic downturn? The, the answer is yes. The hope of the government, of course, is that the cliff is growing ever lower such that by the end of March, it is hoped it, it will have disappeared altogether. Time will tell. Mm. Time will tell. Uh, certainly, when the JobKeeper scheme was first announced, it was all going to end at the end of September of this year. And it's rather as that ambitious, date, I think. <laughs> yeah, very ambitious. And as that date got closer and closer, I think it became clear to everyone that if JobKeeper were not extended in some way, it would be a disaster because the economy had really, by the end of September, not got moving again in the way that people had hoped. So the economy's been hit in a number of really, really profound ways, haven't they? I mean, there's a lot of really new conditions for the same economy to cope with all, of, all at once. I think, yes, there has not in my sentient lifetime <laughs> been anything like this, nothing with so revolutionary and impact and the striking feature of this one was not just the this episode is, is not just the scale of the changes that it demanded imperiously demanded but the speed with which those demands were made the economy essentially collapsed overnight 
And this was something with, you know, a very strong um, need for compliance from the public. You know, when you start to talk about people's lives being at risk if they don't comply, you've got a lot more willingness uh, from your population to comply. We're not just talking about like, the crash of 2008. Um, we're talking about, you know, a, a pandemic and a crisis which can affect every individual on a personal level. For So I imagine that, you know, there would have been a lot more resistance if we weren't in a pandemic to um, any kind of uh, different economic fallout. I agree. One of the striking lessons to be learned, what, one of the, I think, important inquiries to be made in, into our experience of this year is what what motivates people to respond to emergencies like this? Let's take a public health emergency. What motivates people to respond to it in socially responsible ways rather than wholly self-interested? And take then if you take a step back from that, you then can ask yourself how should the our social structures adapt to those impulses? And, and one of those social structures concerns the regulation of employment. I think a particularly striking feature of Australia's response to the pandemic has been the voluntary assumption of responsibility of so many of our people. Mm. But when you look at the comparison of how the Australian population has responded compared to the North American population, or I should say the US population, it's been a very marked difference. Correct, correct. And take the comparison with the United States to illustrate this question how much of the difference between our, resp our, our response and the response of many people in America is explained by the fact that by the JobKeeper scheme and other means, we as a society quickly moved to support people in important ways, including by preserving their jobs. Hmm. And I, I believe if you look at um, sort of the recent months in the States, you know, where they've got huge increase in numbers of cases, but they also removed the support benefit the government was providing to the majority of individuals. Correct, so, to the extent there was any support benefit yeah, at all, really. Yeah. So their crisis is worsening and they've also now removed any kind of safety net for their population. So, of course, yeah. you're going to have a, a far more radical response from your population. They, they really don't have too much to lose at this point. If society does not look after you and you see that it is not doing so, if important aspects of your life, like employment, to take your job, to take um, the example we're now talking about, if you see that society is not supporting you, then there is a powerful impulse in many people to turn instead to look after themselves. Mm. Well, you sort of have We've largely to, yeah. avoided that. Yeah. That's right, because our, our work, our job, is, is actually what provides for our means of survival. If we don't have a job, we're going to not be able to pay the rent or the mortgage or... And we're going to lose the place we live, and that does all sorts of things. Which is happening en masse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, mm. Have we seen much of the consequences like that happening around Australia? Largely, the JobKeeper scheme has succeeded in avoiding at least the worst of those on, on, a, on a widespread scale. Of course, there will be many people who've suffered profoundly, but it would seem that as a society and as an economy, we have successfully avoided the worst of those consequences. Can I take up another theme emerging from what you just said, yeah. which is another lesson of the pandemic, another social lesson, 
it seems to me, is that employment is not just a mechanism by which people earn money to support themselves and their families and pay for their homes and buy food and all the rest of it. There's a large social dimension to it that people derive really important psychological and other personal benefits from working because working is an important way in which we all relate with the world around us and the people in it and think think about the psychological effect that that suddenly being thrown to work remotely isolated in in um, one's homes has had on many people Mm. and the pandemic i think has been a powerful pointer to how important work as a mechanism of participating in the world is for all of us and for people whose preference might be a higher level of social contact and others who would prefer a lower level, I've seen a lot of um, people respond quite well to the option to work remotely and others who've you know, been having a psychological crisis. So again, it's changing the nature of work as we go forward. I imagine there's a lot of employers that are going to see the benefits of having some of their employees work remotely when there is no pandemic. From an economic from a social and from a structural perspective, we have begun upon what seems to me to be a very exciting period of change where the nature of work, how people actually perform work has changed quickly and will continue to change in ways that we can speculate about. It's very difficult to be clear about them except to think it's an exciting time. Mm, It is. And, you know, something you said, it was actually in an interview with Lawyers Weekly about COVID and regarding the legal system, you said it is is important that legal professionals approach new systems positively rather than falling behind barristers and solicitors to use it as an opportunity to adapt. I believe, you know, this from what you've just shared with us, um, this is a common sense approach and can be applied to the employment sector and other sectors as well. And I think that's happening. One can see it all all around. I I know the legal profession very well, and I have seen large, well-resourced law firms rethinking the ways in which they um, want and expect their employees to work. Certainly accommodating, in some circumstances, encouraging people to work remotely from home or otherwise, or to mix between doing that and working in an office, and those sorts of changes are happening all over the economy. Mm. Mm. And they bring, they bring with them very, not, not just sort of operational changes, but also they will inevitably carry with them changes to the way in which we perceive the relationship of employment. So, for example, it's, it's one thing to control the way in which people work when they're all working in an office together or a factory together or something of that kind. But suppose people are working in a more diffuse way from home. Or from a cafe. What does control look like? Or from a cafe or from a farm or from a caravan or whatever it might be. How How does control work as a as a defining feature of employment in those circumstances? These are big questions, big big changes that are underway. Well, I guess people will have to assume a lot more of that responsibility back for themselves. Possibly, but so much of the law of employment 
and not just the law as between employers and employees, but also the law that relates to, for example, uh, occupational health and safety, a hugely important sphere of legal regulation, are all premised on employers having the capacity to control their employees. Just so, for example, an employer has uh, a statutory and a general law obligation to provide a safe system of work and safe places of work for their employees. That's a that's long since regarded as as a fundamental feature of employment. Mm. Uh, how does that work when the place of work of a particular employee is that employee's home and an employer has next to no capacity to control from day to day what the employee is doing there or, or even the way in which the employee is doing it? It's interesting, isn't yeah. it? We're running out of time, so I'm just going to cut to a, a slightly different question. There's a guy called Charlie Massey who wrote a book about regenerative farming, and he toured mm-hmm. around the countryside talking about 80 different farmers who essentially changed from conventional farming to regenerative farming, which is a massive change in, in the way you look at the world. And he found that almost all of them had had some sort of major shock that had happened, whether it might be bankruptcy or poisoning themselves with chemicals or a death in the family or some big shock, allowed them to open up their, their psyche, I suppose, to to a new way of, of structuring things and a new way of looking at things. Do you reckon that this might be, might be an opportunity for something like... I mean, something that's been kicking around in the wings since the 1750s is the cooperative movement. And what the cooperative movement essentially does is it changes that relationship and gets rid of that legal fiction of someone else having responsibility for your work. Because um, all of the members in a workplace would be co-responsible for the good things that come out of the company and the bad things. Do you reckon this might be something for, that could change people's perspective enough to, to handle such a big change in the way we look at work? What changes there will be, I think we can only speculate. The fact that there will be change, I think we can be certain of. As a society, we here in Australia are not perhaps as good as we might be at recognising the need to change and acting on that, effecting change. So it's difficult to be entirely confident (laughs) that we will recognise and take the this opportunity but the fact that it is an opportunity is undoubted Mm. and we don't want to lose the opportunity i think there's a lot of people that have said that in in various sectors that you know as as terrible as the covid crisis is and many of the negatives we've experienced this year not just covid but everything else as well it is also you know within that the nugget of opportunity and not to lose that Mm. look at the way in which almost literally overnight a decade or more of monetarist theory was thrown out the window. Mm. The JobKeeper scheme is a perfect illustration of that. For over a decade, it, it's been a shibboleth of Australian political life that, that debt, national debt, is a bad thing. And, and governments have fallen on that rock. The JobKeeper scheme is the antithesis of that. <laughs> and yet, look how quickly we were able to, to see the need for it and introduce that, and to do so with broad public acceptance. Mm. That's, that's an illustration, I, uh, to my mind, of how powerful an impetus for change episodes like this can be. 
Well, I guess on a national scale, that's that same relationship again. It's, it's We've given up our rights as individuals to become a citizen with our rights and responsibilities. And, and the, the, I guess we're lucky enough in this country that the other side of that relationship, the government, has seen their responsibilities to look after us as well. Many people would argue that. If you go back to the famous tenet of Thatcherism, there is no such thing as society. Well, <laughs> this year has demonstrated surely to everyone that uh, we are a part of society. Absolutely. So, Ian, we did get quite a few um, questions coming in from our, from our listeners when they heard you were going to be on the show with us. Uh, we actually had quite a few barristers <laughs> throw questions at us. Um, <laughs> so you've, you've, you've got a, a fairly um, high-profile reputation there. Um, I wondered if I could just ask you a couple of them. Uh, of course. They will be relating to the Rosato case. So if you're not able to speak about that, please let us know and we'll move along to something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I understand that um, you are the barrister for the employer work pack in that case um, against Rosato, is that correct? I, I am, yes. yes. Um, so one of the questions we have coming through is what are your thoughts about the relationship between the bill and extinguishment neutering of the Rosato decision? <laughs> First question, I think I'll have to pass on that one. All right, okay, fair enough. Um, so based on, I, I, I know we can't really get into a lot of the details which, about the which case. Which bill was that, uh, Zena? Which bill was that? Yeah. Between the bill and the extinguisher. Oh, uh, Ian, would you like to explain that? You can probably explain that better than um, me. uh, The government has recently introduced what it it calls an omnibus industrial relations bill, which is designed to affect some changes to the uh, Fair Work Act, the scheme of industrial regulation in this country, and casual employment is one of the areas that it deals with. Mm. Other areas that it deals with are things like um, part-time employment, enterprise agreements, and so on. So mm. casual employment is only one aspect of the bill. Mm. And so do, on, on that note, um, what would be your... And extinguishment is perhaps n- not the word I would have done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was told that you would know what that meant so <laughs> when I was given that question. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, what is your opinion on the government's proposed new laws to deal with the issue of casualised employment and its definition and parameters? Like, are workers going to gain or lose more rights, employee, employers gain or lose more rights, or is it going to be a bit more balanced? Everything is a balance. Mm. Everything in this in in the field of industrial regulation, at this level, it is a balance between competing interests, and that's inevitably going to be so. And and the interests that are involved are not just the those of particular employees and particular employers, but there's also a national interest. Mm. And just before we get to wind up here, perhaps we could leave on a positive note. Do you have any tips for employers or employees to navigate the complex JobKeeper landscape that we're in right now and the employment landscape in general? Is there any sagely advice you'd like to pass on? The biggest tip that I would give is this. The focus has been until now on entry into the JobKeeper scheme and navigating the JobKeeper scheme while we're in it. The focus now is on leaving the scheme, exiting the scheme the runway off the scheme. And now is the time for employers and employees who are still participating in the scheme to think about what they are going to do and how they're going to regulate their affairs as they come off the scheme, Hmm. as they exit the scheme. It's a different perspective, but very important. And it goes back perhaps to the notion of change that we were talking about. Will particular employees and particular employees go back to the way they worked together and related with one another before the pandemic? Or 
is this an opportunity to make changes, productive changes? Yeah, and I definitely believe in the latter, and I'm sure most people listening would too. So we're just about out of time, Ian. I wish we did have more time with you because we've probably got another 20 pages of questions we could have thrown at you. Um, so listeners who would like to um, learn more about your services, and I believe you do a, a lot of other things. You wear many, many hats, not just what we've talked about today. Um, I believe they can go to your website, which is www.ianneal.com, and they can see um, a wonderful plethora of other things that you're involved in there, including what I really enjoyed, I downloaded, was your style guide. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> you are a beautiful writer, um, incredibly articulate with a wonderful um, command of words, and I really enjoyed having a read through. I think it was Mark Twain that said the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I wanted to thank you for um, taking the time out of your busy schedule before Christmas to join us on the show and the chat with us. And hopefully maybe sometime in 2021, we could have you back if you're open. I, would, I would love to. This has been a hugely enjoyable and very stimulating conversation. Welcome. So thank you. That was Barrister Ian Neal SC joining us today to discuss the contract of employment and the JobKeeper scheme. So thank you, Ian. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.